Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, my Bible is opening to Isaiah chapter 9, title of the message, The Coming Christ. Really, that's the title of our four-part series through the month of December. We live in a great tension as Christians today between the already and the not yet. So on one hand, we know Christ has already come. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, His incarnation, His first advent. And yet now we're living in what we call the church age, from the time that Jesus ascended into glory and to the time that He comes again for His church. So we are anxiously awaiting His second advent. And so that's what I mean by that tension. As we think about Christmas, and there's no doubt we're in the Christmas season, we like to talk about some of the gifts that God has given us. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. I thank the Lord that I have a simple mind. Because there are a lot of uh, commenters, uh, commentary about what is this indescribable gift. Well, those of us with simple minds know it's Jesus, right? We don't have to really debate that too much. It's the greatest gift anyone can give is God's dear son, Jesus says, no greater love has a man than he lay down his life for his friend. That's what Jesus came to do. But Jesus is called indescribable, I think, because there's no one word or even family of words that could describe who he is and what he does. Did you know there are over 200 titles and names ascribing Jesus in the Bible? And we're going to look at just four of them, Lord willing, over the next four Sundays. Today's title is Wonderful Counselor. That's taken from our text, Isaiah 9. Before we read that, though, let's talk about Isaiah a little bit. Isaiah, of course, was a prophet who lived about 800 years before the coming of Jesus. Isaiah lived in a time when the Assyrians were threatening to take over that part of the world in which he lived, in which Israel uh, resided. And he was sent by God to warn the people to repent. Of course, they refused to do that. And The good portion of Isaiah is the genre of literature we know as messianic prophecy because it foretells a savior, a messiah that was to come. And and this particular messianic prophecy here in chapter 9 came at a time when Israel really needed to hear about God's hope. But some other messianic prophecies are a little different. Probably the most famous is Isaiah chapter 53. We read it usually around Easter. Listen to it. Who has believed our message And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That is unmistakably a prophecy about Jesus. In fact, it's so accurate in its description of Jesus that liberal theologians don't accept it as part of the Old Testament canon. They say, how could it possibly 
have been that accurate because they reject, the liberal theologians, anything supernatural in the Bible. Well, that leaves a very small Bible. You, you heard about, I, I guess, the debate between the liberal theologian and the atheist that had to be canceled because they could not find any points of disagreement. You, you'll get that on your way home. <laughs> Obviously, Isaiah is speaking of Jesus. Jesus knew that. Jesus affirmed that in the New Testament. Remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry. And he comes to his home village of Nazareth. And he comes into the synagogue and he's invited to read the Old Testament scripture and to make comment on it. And the scripture that he read was from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 61. And he read this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The scripture says after he read that, he sat down and said to them, this day this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now the meaning of that was not lost on the synagogue congregants that day. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, that he was claiming to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's messianic prophecy. And it angered them so much, they chased him out of the synagogue up to a high place and tried to throw him off and kill him. Well this morning we come to another famous messianic prophecy the one that we read at Christmas. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace or the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, as we always say, texts are set in specific context. In the context of this, as we said, it was 800 years before Christ. The imminent judgment was coming through the Assyrians. God sends hope through Isaiah's pen, hope about the Messiah, that he would not forsake his covenants with his people. This particular covenant he speaks of is the Davidic covenant, the covenant he made with David. Remember he told David that there would never cease to be one of his descendants on the throne of Israel. And you historians would say, well, that proves the Bible isn't true. Because we know that after David died, his son Solomon took over as king. And after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took over. Rehoboam was such a terrible king that it divided the kingdom to northern and southern. Eventually both of those kingdoms were judged by God and there was not again one on the throne of Israel. Well, that means that he had to be speaking about an eternal king, and he certainly was. And there's only one that fits that bill, and that is Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so for next Sunday mornings, elect next four, Lord willing, up until Christmas Day, we will look at these four titles of Jesus. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Now, right away, we run into some controversy. Because some of you have translations of the Bible that place a comma between wonderful and counselor, signifying that those editors interpreted that Hebrew text to mean there were five titles rather than four. Well, I'm in the camp that says there should be no comma. You might know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, which has no punctuation marks and is written from right to left rather than left to right, which explains my grade point average at seminary. And it's not just because there are only four Sundays between now and Christmas that I hold that position either. 
wonderful counselor is a description of who Jesus is. Now, it really makes no difference because he is wonderful and he's a counselor. We could study those things separately and it would not change the meaning. But the word wonder, my wife read a book last year. I saw it on our, on our night table by the name of Wonder. I understand it's been made into a movie recently. It's about a little boy who has a facial deformity. His parents put him into school in his first year in middle school, which is hard on any child. He was bullied, he was made fun of, but he handled it with such grace that at the end of the year, his family said he was a wonder. Well, Jesus is a wonder. The Hebrew word is pela, it means miracle. Jesus' life was known for the miraculous. It began all the way back before time began. Didn't it? Remember, Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. Just to try to understand that is miraculous. But he is wonderful in his creation. John 1 says that all things were created by him and through him. Nothing has been created that has been created except through him. He is wonderful in his incarnation. He is wonderful, in other words, in his birth. Miraculous in his birth. Born of a virgin, as Isaiah predicted. And as confirmed in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Listen. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Now mark that, that's important. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what sort of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now hear this, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, who? David. Luke confirms that Isaiah's prophecy of the Davidic covenant being fulfilled through Messiah is indeed fulfilled through Jesus. And Mary said, how can this be since I'm a virgin? His very birth is wonderful. It is miraculous. But in his life, he was wonderful in power. Now, God did not choose to tell us much about the childhood and adolescence of Jesus. And you pick up the story again when he's about 30 years old. He's beginning to minister there in the Middle East. And his very first miracle was at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee where he turned the water uh, into wine. But that certainly was not the greatest or the last of his miracles. From that point on, wherever he went, he healed the sick. He caused the blind to see. He was uh, powerful and authoritative over the physical realm. After all, he created it. But also over the spiritual realm. He cast out demons. He silenced them. He walked on water. He stilled the storm. He raised the dead. And he himself arose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. What could be more powerful than to be more powerful than death itself? So Jesus is miraculous. He is wonderful in his birth, but also in his power. But he's also wonderful in compassion for the sick and, and for the handicapped. Matthew 20, 34, moved with compassion. Speaking of some blind people he saw, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. It's not just for the, the handicapped and for the sick, but, but also for the poor and the downcast, the hungry. Matthew 15, 32, and Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people. Aren't you glad that we don't serve a distant deity? 
We don't serve one who is unmoved by what moves us. Jesus said, I feel. I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry for they may faint on the way. But ultimately, the most miraculous and wonderful aspect of the compassion of Christ is his compassion for the lost. Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus came into a world in which the people were weighted down by rules and regulations. God had given to his chosen people the Ten Commandments, but to those Ten Commandments the Pharisees, the scribes had added rules and regulations and burdens so heavy upon the people that they began even to dread to try to worship the Lord God. We never find in the scripture Jesus rebuking or speaking harshly to those sheep without a shepherd, but we often see Jesus' harshest rebukes and condemnation falling upon those who claim to be speaking for God, but who are not. Seeing the people, he felt compassion on them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is wonderful in compassion, also for the brokenhearted. You know that the shortest verse in the Bible, just two words, is Jesus wept. Again, the, the theologians, the commentators argue a lot of ink has been spilt on why Jesus wept. Was it because of their rejection of the Messiah? Was it because of um, some other ethereal reason? I, again, the simple reason is he felt compassion on those who were hurting. Jesus had friends. He had become very close to Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And when he died, he came and Lazarus' funeral was already over. Remember his sister said, if you'd only been here. The scripture says Jesus wept. He was brokenhearted for her. That's why the New Testament says to the church, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And Jesus wept out of compassion. Scripture says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest. We do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is wonderful in compassion for the sinner, for the weak, the brokenhearted, the poor, the outcast, the handicapped, the infirmed. But Jesus also is wonderful in his provision. After all, he is the creator of the universe. John chapter 1 says, All things have been created by him and through him. Nothing has been created that has been created except through him. But not only did he create this universe and all that is in it, he sustains what he has created with an incredible provision. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There's been a lot made of the phrase, according to his riches, and I think rightly so. This is the gift-giving season. And some people just have a, a gift, it seems, for giving good gifts. Because they give according to their love and according to their ability rather than out of. See, if someone gives out of their riches or out of their love, they just 
give as least as they can, the minimal amount. But when you give according to, it is in accordance, commiserate with your ability to give. And the Bible says that God gives spiritual blessings according to His riches. Now, is God a God who has a wealth of riches to give? Yes. And He has a heart of love, and He's ready and willing to pour out those spiritual blessings on those that Jesus died for. He's wonderful in His provision. His, he says, my God will supply all your needs according to His riches. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. See, God is not holding out. He's not miserly. He's provided everything we need, not only for salvation, but to live a life that is pleasing to Him. He's given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. He's given us the closed canon of Scripture. He's given us a wonderful local church to be a part of us. He's given us teachers. He's given us everything that could possibly be necessary to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And of course, the greatest need of every human being is forgiveness, salvation. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus has provided even that. Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. I believe the King James verse says he is able to save to the uttermost. That's a good word. Save to the uttermost. There was a song when I was a kid we used to sing. Save to the uttermost. That is, there's absolutely nothing lacking. There's no shortfall. Everything that we need has been accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. He is wonderful in provision for the physical needs of his children, but most importantly for the spiritual needs of his children including their salvation. And He is, according to our text today, wonderful in wisdom. He is the wonderful counselor. The wonderful counselor. Now, exactly what that means is a very difficult thing to grasp. It means certainly that He is eminently qualified to counsel. James 1.5, if anyone needs wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. So Jesus is eminently qualified to give wisdom. We saw last week that when you have an important decision to make as a Christian, one of the things you ought to do after you've consulted the Scripture is to consult other godly Christians. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Well, the greatest counselor is Jesus because He's eminently qualified. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's Alpha and Omega, meaning He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. And the Scripture says through His Spirit, He leads us to all Truth, truth, knowledge, and wisdom are synonyms, but there's a nuance of difference in all of those. 1 Corinthians 1 calls Jesus the wisdom of God. That is, He is the personification of wisdom. Colossians chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everyone who came in contact with Jesus was overwhelmed by His wisdom. Remember back in Luke 4, Jesus comes into His hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue among people He grew up with. And the Scripture says, even those that chased Him out and tried to throw Him off the cliff marveled at His wisdom. They were saying things like, uh, 
Isn't this the son of Joseph and Mary? Didn't he grow up in Nazareth? How in the world can he speak with such wisdom? So what does it mean for the Apostle Paul to say in Colossians 2 that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Well, R.C. Sproul puts it like this. Knowledge is equivalent to the intellectual content of the faith. Let's pause right there. Would you agree with me that to be saved... There are certain facts that we have to believe and assent to. Namely, that uh, Jesus is who he claimed to be, the eternal second person of the Trinity, that he has the right to rule and reign over your life. Romans chapter 10 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be what? Saved. So there are certain historical facts that are part and parcel of the gospel, but it is not enough to have a wealth of knowledge. All of us likely know people, grew up with people, that you did not want to be on the opposite team when we played Trivial Pursuit, right? You were going to lose because that person had a lot of knowledge, but maybe they didn't know how to apply it in everyday life. We call that, that book learning, right? They, they had a lot of facts in their brain, but they seemingly had no ability to have that translated in wise and good decisions. So go back to what R.C. Sproul said. Knowledge is the equivalent to the intellectual content of the faith, comma, and wisdom is the ability to see reality as God does. See, that's what real wisdom is. The ability to see reality as God does. We call that here a biblical or a Christian worldview. And so you take in the news, you take in the economy, you take in the tragedies, you take in the natural disasters, wisdom is the ability to take the knowledge of those things and understand them and see them, process them the way that God does. And the only way to do that is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So wisdom is the ability to see reality as God does, enabling people to apply knowledge in a life that pleases the Creator. We saw last week, didn't we, that the reason God created this universe and the reason that He created human beings and the reason He saved your soul was so that you would glorify Him and I would glorify Him, that we would make much of Him. But the only way that we can do that, to live a life, to think thoughts, to make decisions that ultimately please the Creator is through His Son. And so he gave, Paul says, this indescribable gift of his son so that we could be made right with him and that we could glorify him forever. That's a good gift, isn't it? That's the gift that we come to celebrate at Christmas. Now we could add other aspects of the wonderful nature of Jesus. I could add, for example, that he's now wonderful in his intercession. Remember after Jesus was resurrected for 40 days, he taught his disciples. And on the 40th day, there on the Mount of Olives, he ascended in their presence back into heaven. Where the scripture says, he is today seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. To intercede means to stand between. So Jesus stands between the righteous wrath of God and our sin so that Nothing we could do could separate us from the love of God, according to Paul in the book of Romans. And so Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore, because of that truth, because we are in Christ, 
because he's interceding for us in heaven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We could speak of, of the wonderful nature of his second coming in the future. And we love to read about it oftentimes at funerals that one day the trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and then those that remain will be caught up together with the Lord and there we'll be with the Lord forevermore. See, we, we would run out of breath before we ran out of words to describe the wonder of Jesus. He is indeed God's indescribable gift. And so what do you do with someone who's given you a wonderful gift? Well, if you're wise, you receive it, right? That's the beginning point of appreciating a gift. You take it and you thank Him for it. That's what we do often here is thank the Lord for our salvation through Jesus Christ. But beyond that, you open that package and you admire it. You study it to see all of its aspects so that you can appreciate. That's what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. He said, I bow my knee and pray to God that you would, that, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, he said, that you would begin to appreciate the height and breadth and depth of your salvation. And then, because when, when you begin to understand the height and breadth and depth of your gift, then you praise it, don't you? You're able to enjoy it more, which, which is the next thing you do, you get the most out of your gift. Now, some of you at Christmas may be deeded a gold mine. I hope you are. And I hope you're a faithful giver to this church. <laughs> but you may be deeded a gold mine up in Colorado somewhere. There may be $2 billion worth of gold in that mine. But if you accept the title deed to that gold mine and you buy yourself a nice rocking chair and you park it right outside the entrance of that mine and you never harvest any of that gold, you still own the gold that's in the mine, but you don't get the most out of it. That's why the scripture says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The gift is your salvation. Sanctification is the process by which you grow into the image of Christ and you get the most of your salvation through faithful Bible study and scripture memory and fellowship with the saints and exercising your spiritual gifts. But then ultimately, the purpose of God's gift is to be displayed so that it may be shared with others. Jesus says we're here to be light and salt, right? And he says you don't take a lamp and put it under a bushel basket, but you put it for all to see. There's not a better opportunity in the calendar year than the Advent season to put Jesus on display, is it? Your neighbors are open to it. They've got decorations on their windows they don't even understand. You can help them. Invite them into your home. Share the Christmas story with them. Share your personal testimony with them. Put the Lord Jesus Christ on display. Share this indescribable gift. He indeed is a wonderful counselor. One that we cannot describe in the 30 minutes we have this morning. But thanks be to God, we have all of eternity to praise his name. Let's do that just now as we pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we've come together this morning and we've read just two verses out of the Old Testament. Isaiah, 6, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Lord, there we see four titles of the many hundreds in the Bible for Jesus. No one phrase or not even ten words can describe who he is and what he's like. 
Thank you, Father, that uh, in your kindness you allow us to attempt to do that. Now, Father, I pray perhaps there's even one here today who does not know Jesus in the free pardon of sin. They've heard about him. Maybe they have some intellectual knowledge about him, but uh, they've never bowed their knee to his lordship. They've never received this gift of salvation through faith. Lord, I pray for that person right now that uh, by the Holy Spirit you'd open their blind eyes, that they would see their need of a Savior. Lord, that you would draw them by your Spirit and give them the faith to repent and to believe. And Lord, I pray for Christians here today that all of us would be encouraged and equipped as we dwell upon and we meditate on the wonderful nature of Jesus, wonderful in his creation, wonderful in his uh, conception, in his birth, in his life. He was wonderful in power, wonderful in compassion, wonderful in provision, and wonderful in wisdom, wonderful in every way. And so, Father, we pray that all the fame, honor, and attention would go to him this Christmas season. Help us, Father, to, to see through the accoutrements of the holiday that we may simply and truly worship him. And whatever good you accomplish in and through us, we'll give you the glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.